Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is our podcast where we discuss 25 of our favourite movies from any given decade. And this is our 91st episode, which puts us firmly in the 1980s miniseries, where we are, of course, discussing 1986's Blue Velvet. Matthew, how are you this evening? We're recording it far later in the day than we normally record these episodes. Yeah, we just got an air fryer. We made buffalo chicken burgers and they were really fucking good, so... Nothing could spoil that for me, except, oh, wait, it's time for the annual Ben Wright, Matt Wrong, Matt Hates movie <laughs> that is critically acclaimed. Is there one every year? I don't think there was oh, one last. Boyhood? There's... Boyhood? No, no, Florida Project. Florida Project and Boyhood. I mean, okay. I already knew I hated Boyhood. I just yeah, told you you'd put it on anyway. Florida Project was a brand new one. That I mean, I've seen Blue Velvet before. I, I guess I hoped that I would like it more. <laughs> I don't, time, think we, I, don't. I don't think we had one in the 2000s. I don't think we had one in the 90s. Looking mm. at the lists of like, I don't think there's any one of those where I'm like, Matt was like, oh, really? I don't remember them that well, but I'm sure there was one. Goodfellas, Hustle Lounge, Boys now. in the Hood, Point Break, Death Becomes a Few Good Men, Groundhog Day, Jurassic Park, Chunking Express, Edward, Clueless Babe, Empire Records, Heat, Fargo, Bound, Scream, Fifth Element, Boogie Nights, Starship Troopers, Good Will Hunting, Truman Show, Office Space, All About My Mother, Bo Travai. I don't adore Bo Travai. <laughs> yeah, but you're not like, I, I feel like you're definitely... <laughs> okay, it's not David, the same though, no. No, David, David Lynch is certainly a director who we have, over the course of our friendship, discussed a lot. <laughs> Yeah, we did this episode for you all via text. We can just read it out if you want. <laughs> you know, I don't want to say he's he's the darling of of people who are like hardcore film bros or, or like, you know, in the way that like Spielberg is to like mainstream pop culture blockbusters, he is like the director. I don't know if David Lynch is quite that, but it's certainly a lifestyle choice and aesthetic to absolutely fucking love David Lynch. And I don't know how I feel about him. <laughs> like I'm, 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 I'm all extremes. If I look at everything he's made, I would come out on the side of not liking David Lynch. <laughs> That's fair enough. So let, let's run through what you have seen from him. So a razor head, yes or no? Yes. Elephant Man, yes or no? Yes. Dune, yes or no? No. Blue Velvet, yes. Yes. <laughs> Wild at Heart, yes or no? I don't think so. Twin Peaks, Firewalk with me. Worst film I've ever seen in my entire life. Not joking. <laughs> Do not understand what I was so excited. I was like, that sounds fucking dope. The last days of Laura Palmer. I've never heard of that. I've known about Twin Peaks for like forever and ever and ever. And like, I listened to a lot of podcasts where people fucking loved Twin Peaks. And I was always like, yeah, I'm going to watch Twin Peaks. And then like, they just name dropped Firewalk with me. I was like, what is that? And then I, I look into it and it's like, oh, it's a fucking prequel movie where we see Last Days of Laura Palmer. And then I'm like, oh no, this is terrible. <laughs> we'll have to talk Twin Peaks in a minute. We will have to talk to him because a minute. Lost Highway. Nope. Straight Story, which I did try to get on our 90s list. Did you? All right. I no. did. Straight like straight Story. But straight, straight Story is the like, only one here I haven't heard of. <laughs> straight Story is like a really, really good like traditional movie from David Lynch. It's like, right. in his entire filmography, it's probably his like most normal movie. Oh, right. Okay. Like, he calls it the straight story, and it's like just a, like, a nice traditional story, I, essentially. I would be really curious to check that out, then, based on, like, I don't know, like... I can't help but compare him to Tim Burton and like, you know, there are some actually quite interesting movies before Tim Burton disappears up his own ass and becomes Tim Burton. They aren't generally later in his career like it is with uh, with Straight Story. But yeah, no, I mean, again, I mean, we'll it, talk it's, Twin it's, Peaks it's, in a minute. It's just deeply but... funny. It's just deeply funny that he made a Disney movie in 1999 <laughs> yeah. about a man travelling across Iowa and Wisconsin on a lawnmower. 
Okay, so when you say it's normal, I I mean I mean it's like by its standard, it's, I suppose that still is. But I mean I just mean in terms of the fact that like it doesn't have any of the like unsettling like horror elements that yeah. seem to kind yeah. of like pervade a lot of his like later work. Yeah. Mulholland Drive, which yeah. is obviously like the best movie of the 21st century, if you listen to some people, started off as a TV pilot and then became a feature film where. It's, have you seen Mulholland Drive? I yeah, yeah, I like, I like Mulholland Drive. Yeah. I like Mulholland Drive. It's just quite funny when you get to like the 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 forty five minute point of that thing where you're like, well, <laughs> now the TV pilot has ended, and then like, <laughs> cool, we're now going to have a graphic full frontal nudity lesbian sex scene. Yeah. And then Inland Empire, which uh, is like his last feature film he's directed. It is mad was... he hasn't done anything. I mean, sorry, sorry, Ben. Twin Peaks: The Return is a film, so. <sighs> He actually directed what twenty two films, eighteen films. No, Twin Peaks: Return is one movie. Sorry, that's seventeen it's one... hours long or eighteen <laughs> hours long. Seventeen hour long movie that happens to have end credits. And, is, and every episode is structured in a way that they end the exact same way every hour. Yeah, uh, that's 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 a movie in my opinion. That is. Uh, if anyone doesn't know what that's about, Letterboxd lists Twin Peaks: The Return as a movie, and it's a movie rating website. There are some other TV shows on there, I think. It's mostly miniseries, right? And Twin Peaks: The Return kind of gets away with it because it's a a miniseries. 18 episodes is not a miniseries. That's longer than season one by like a factor of almost three. It's 18 episodes and it's also the third season of a television show. Mm -hmm. Uh, Isn't the justification that he directed every single episode which isn't normal for TV? Yes, that is the other thing. It's David Lynch. (sighs) David Lynch directed every single episode. He co-wrote and directed every single episode, which is obviously a huge deal because, let's do the Twin Peaks chat now. When he does Twin Peaks... He co-creates that show with Mark Frost, mm-hmm. who I would argue, and probably you would listen to this, was is a leveling presence for him. Yes. When I learned it was the exact opposite of what I thought it was, and that actually he was the dude keeping it in check and in the lane of what I enjoyed. I'll just say, it broke my heart to learn that David Lynch never had any fucking interest <laughs> in the murder mystery that gripped the world, like Twin Peaks was a fucking cultural phenomenon. Everyone was like, what happened to Laura Palmer? Turns out he doesn't give a shit what happened to Laura Palmer. He just wanted to make his weird soap opera in a town full of weirdos. And I do, you know, I'm not saying I hate, I guess you'd call it like the second half of season two or most of season two, because like he gets out of, he, he, I feel like he wraps it up out of obligation and I was like, anyway, let's watch James be a fuckboy with various divorcees. I do genuinely think the second half of season two is like nigh unwatchable. Okay. I was doing everything I could to to mm. watch other stuff. I think, I think that's the thing is, I think Mark Frost and David Lynch together created a really, really compelling TV show and it was yeah. one of those things where like all the elements were coming together in Twin Peaks to make, make this kind of like coalesce into a a perfect storm of like what they needed to do and then when it becomes just a tv show without any of the drive of the murder mystery i yeah. think is genuinely someone interesting yeah i mean i i still got some kind of a kick out of he casts really interesting people and he does the set design of twin peaks is incredible and you're already invested at that point so i did get something out of watching just these pretty people be fucking strange together but yeah, no, I'm season one of Twin Peaks, inject it into my veins, basically. Like and yeah, just genuinely, as I said, devastating to learn he didn't give a shit about any of that. And it was I, just like a I setup he... for him. And I guess you look at Blue Velvet and the same thing. Like <laughs> whether he meant to or not, 
he completely grabs my interest off the bat with like here's this very bizarre thing and this mystery and what the hell does this mean and then by the end of it he didn't give a fuck about that (laughs) so i think i'm gonna disagree i do think he gives a fuck but i think he's far more interested in the societal impact and the kind of the community impact of those things rather than the personal are we talking Blue Velvet? Or Twin I think Peaks? in I think in both. I think okay. in both Twin Peaks and in Blue Velvet, he's far more interested in yeah. what a society does to people and what can happen to kind of like cause these events to happen. And obviously, Twin Peaks it has so much more time to delve into this community that has like completely failed Laura Palmer. Yeah, and and that is three seasons of television are all basically the ripple the rippling after effects of her death. Yeah. and I don't know how much of the return you've seen. Uh, I guess we should get yeah. <sighs> I made it like a third of the way through and I have right. been meaning to finish it for like forever. Did you... Some of it I really loved, some of it I'm like, what the fuck are we doing here? Did you get up to the episode with the nuclear bomb? No. So that's episode eight, which is the like the, the all-time famous one, which is essentially an episode which gives you the, the creation of Bob. Interesting. Okay. See, that intrigues me, but I just, I'm not, <laughs> he's hurt me before. Right. Okay. <laughs> that's, thing. That's, that's the thing is when I say episode eight is the most acclaimed episode of the show, it is the most lynch ass episode of the show. Oh no. It is. is it just a whole episode of like the White Room or the White Lodge or whatever you call it? Because I hated the finale of of, of original two. Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah. Just forty five straight minutes of surrealism. I'm like, I can't deal with oh, this. Oh, this is this is sixty straight minutes of surrealism. Wonderful. And like that's the thing. Like so, I you know I distinctly remember like you know what is this weird building? What are they guarding? Some people are fucking. Suddenly they're dead. Who knows what did it? I'm like, this is intriguing as hell. And then we're just doing weird stuff with like a god. I don't know if I'm recalling this right. Like, a guy goes on top of a cube that is somewhere else, and I sound insane. That's the thing for me. He creates all this, like, deeply visually interesting shit, but I don't think he has any interest in, like, delving into, like... I guess I'm that... that I'm, I'm a lore guy, you know? I want to know why is this this, and what whereas, does this whereas mean he's for like... that? And he's like, don't worry about that, just go with it. And I can't. I simply cannot, unless yeah. you tell me what it is. I Yeah, that, I can 100% see that. Like, he is very much just like, go with your gut, like, just trust it. Yeah. And all, and he will... And it's like, maybe he'll give you an explanation, but the explanation yeah. will be covered in, like, a monologue that a tertiary <laughs> character is giving whilst they're eating a pie. Of course. And like, you know, I'm not saying I need every single, you know, there are people that want, you know, we've we've taught Lindelof a lot. And I think there's a similar thing here. And there is an element of like, stuff that just, it's better I don't explain it. And I'm I'm completely down with that. I just need something. (laughs) And I think Lindelof gives that to me. And I think Lynch does not want to i think they're a really interesting diversion point because obviously 2017 is the year that twin peaks the return comes out yeah and in that year every single film magazine that is to do with like high culture is tripping over themselves to be like twin peaks the return was the best movie of 2017 it's like top of sight and sound it's top of cahier de cinema it's at the top of all these lists and then all the tv critics who review TV shows are like best show of the year was Leftover season three. Fuck yeah! And, and it's like and it's like this bizarre thing where like TV words have like, to mean something. Ben is is the problem. Words, film is a very specific thing, and so is television. But it's, and film got bad and TV got good, and I think film was just desperate to get you know its mitt on something and like ah oh, let's just claim this seven minute sequence of True Detective as a short film and get it an Oscar or something. Well, I mean, oh yeah. Obviously, the whole thing around 
around that is that like True Detective won McConaughey as Oscar because it's yeah, airing yeah. right right during the voting window. Yeah. So he shouldn't have won for Dallas Buyers Club. He technically won for True Detective because yeah. everyone was like, "Wow, McConaughey's great." Yeah. But yeah, like Tw- yeah. Twin Peaks season three or Twin Peaks: The Return, however you yeah. want to call it, and Leftover season three are both very interesting dichotomies. I think it really does come down to what is your interest in this medium? Mm. Are you someone who is more invested in a director telling a story through visuals and like emotional storytelling yeah. almost, or are you more interested in someone who's kind of like got a little bit of a firmer hand on the writing and the visuals can be good, but they're not being propelled by this kind of like yeah. singular directorial vision. And I mean, I think we've, we've established very firmly across mostly this podcast, but just everything. I'm a writer guy, you're a director guy, and that's fine. But even in that case, I'm like, Leftover Season 3, I prefer to, to Twin Peaks. I watch sure. all the Twin Peaks Return this year, and I'm like, yeah, it's probably in my like top five shows of 2017. Mm. I'm I'm definitely not saying it's better than Leftovers Season I mean, 3, which is like, favourite show ever kind of like territory. We're yeah. getting to that with that one. I mean, how about that Michael Cera performance, though? It's fucking great. David Lynch has this unique ability to make me feel things that no other director can on like a very visceral level sure. but I, I'm, I'm kind of like held back like I don't I just can't say any of his stuff is like a five star masterpiece like not no. even Blue Velvet but like all I, having watched a lot of Lynch in kind of the last 12 months like Mulholland Drive and Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet all this stuff I'm just like all of this is great i love it on a conceptual level but i there's just something in me that's holding back from going this is a flat out masterpiece one of the greatest movies of all time when there are people who are like every single thing that lynch does barring maybe dune is like the greatest film of of the of ever i think he he fundamentally just wants to dick around and like some beautiful stuff can come out of that but it does also just i don't think like you said i don't think he's ever had that like fully crystallized incredible work half the time he pisses me off and then the other half i'm like wow look what you've done here but i mean i guess I... at least he made me feel something man <laughs> yeah but like I, that's the thing is i think of all of his works and i'm like the scene in blue velvet when they arrive at like the whatever the hell has gone wrong in in the apartment <laughs> yeah and like you, you are given no information. A guy has his head like blown off, and someone else is like tied oh, to a chair. Is, yeah, that is that is peak. That's the part of the White Lodge that I like. That is that is the little person talking backwards with the flaming cards and, and all that shit. Yeah, and it's just um, it's just it's just such a striking visual image that yeah. will like forever stay with me. And yeah. the same thing where like, and I'm you're gonna disagree now, but like the end of Twin Peaks Fire Walk with Me, where it's just this like primalistic vision of like the death of Laura Palmer being done in this way of just like the systematic destruction of a woman is is just imagery that will be seared in my brain forever and obviously like twin peaks fire walk with me is back in the popular culture because andrew dominic's just released blonde and there's a lot of discussion about like is dominic a misogynist is he anti-choice and they're comparing it to like why would you want to watch a three-hour movie about the systematic destroy uh, destruction of marilyn monroe when the laura palmer movie exists which is an which is a very similar <laughs> thing in terms of like this is a movie about like stripping a woman way of like every single part of her humanity because of the evilness that exists in this world so like it's the it's the micro made into macro essentially yeah. Okay. Which again, which is again, is like a thing that Lynch is like fucking obsessed with. Like, yes, I think he loves women in trauma. Yes, he does. And women in trauma. It is one of those things where it's like, no matter what your intentions are, if you revisit this kind of thing over and over and over again, my eyebrow goes up. So I don't know. 
no, that's fair. That's fair enough because obviously like, there are a lot of people who have like leveled the misogyny claim of this movie. I believe Roger Ebert is among those people who have said like, why is this movie the way that it is, especially in its depiction? <laughs> that's it, a very Roger Ebert way to react to a movie, <laughs> like especially in the depiction of. Isabella Rossellini. Yeah, this, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and that's the thing is like you see the interviews with David Lynch. David Lynch says like this movie would have been banned from cinemas if he wasn't kind of like cutting stuff. And one of the things was like he couldn't show Rossellini actually be hit by Hopper. So in the in the scene where like she gets hit when she's on the floor, it cuts away and you get just get McLaughlin's reaction yeah, to yeah. the to the hit and stuff like that. And he says like it actually came away meaning more because you're not showing this hit and it feels fake instead you're getting like a very visceral like the sound and and all the rest of it but then you on the flip side of it you've got people like mark mode who reviewed this movie badly when it came out and then years later is like as a film critic it taught me that when a film really gets under your skin and really provokes a visceral reaction you have to be very careful about assessing it i didn't walk out on blue velvet because it was a bad film i walked out on it because it was a really good film the point was at the time i wasn't good enough for it Okay. And then and the quote that I butchered last week is is from Guy Madden, whose whose exact quote was the last real earthquake to hit cinema. I'm sure directors throughout the film world felt the earth move beneath their feet and couldn't sleep the night of their first encounter with it bit with it back in nineteen eighty six. So like this movie has got like an esteem behind it and a lot of people who are arguing against the misogyny claims and arguing for there is like thematic resonance and also directorial like intent into just... this movie. <laughs> There is, like, a cynical part of me that is, like... You know you see, like... You get, like, parody or pastiche of people who are super into art who get, like, tricked into thinking something is really good and, like, no one dares break ranks and say, actually, this is bad. And they're like, oh, it's bad, therefore it must be good or something. That's kind of how I feel about this movie and some... a lot of Lynch's work where I'm like we can't actually all sit around and agree this scene is being well written acted and like performed surely like this is not how people talk there is just random bullshit happening and I'm not saying no one sincerely likes it but like there are just certain scenes that stick out to me where I'm like are you all just sitting around and none of you get it or or like you don't dare speak out against it so you're like well this is clearly the work of a genius and I know that that's the part of my brain that like just can't accept surrealism and abstract art and stuff like that i think it is amusing though when you get to like when you are delving into like film twitter film bro Mm. film whatever you want to call it culture there are so many lynch fans and it's very obvious all of their brains are programmed in the same way and i and i get it as well where there are certain genres of movie where when i watch them i'm just like i don't understand why this is as acclaimed as it is like i've watched a few pieces of like slow cinema this year some of slow cinema is fucking incredible and can like really get under your skin with like a tone or like a vision of it and then other times you're like why the fuck is this movie four hours long and nothing happens like the tweet about first person point of view movie about a pigeon and all the rest of it told exclusively in like hungarian or or whatever you want to do it and it's like and you see people like that sounds like a fucking rips and like (laughs) do you actually think that or are you all just so deeply embedded in your fucking psyop state of 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 being into like ironic disassociated culture like that you feel you must say that because but, no one actually wants to watch that do they but then but then blue velvet ends up number 89 of all time yeah on the um, list of movies and all the rest of it. And he very obviously gets under people's skin. And I think yeah. that's the key reason is that, like, he obviously doesn't for you. But if you were the sort of person who could allow this movie to just kind of, like, 
get into them and it becomes again it's a visceral emotional almost primal thing that you're reacting to as opposed to you who's kind of watching it like i want this to make sense why is anyone saying and doing any of this He's the ultimate vibes director, and if you're I, not, yeah. if you're if you're not someone, then I who's need looking... his vibes to be even better. Is yes, my thing. yeah, yeah. I don't mind vibes. I just I need more vibes than this. Um, well, thing is, like, I you're... prefer Drive to this. And which, you know, yeah, we had again... a very lengthy talk about Drive and how it's a vibes movie, but there there is more fundamental filmmaking happening there for me in Drive than there is in Twin Peaks. Uh, Twin Peaks. <laughs> in Blue Velvet, Freud wins again. They're just I feel there are just times where he just he just has zero interest in... I don't know. It's difficult because we're getting into territory of like, you know, you can never break away from, from the norm and you must, you know, conform and all of this stuff. But like, I feel there's like a level and he's just completely disinterested in it. I was like, nah, fuck it, we're going over here now. And I'm like, all right, <laughs> this guy's going to sing a whole Roy Orbison song, I guess. Yes. Which so... I remember, obviously, so I guess it did its job. But I'm like, why did he do that? Right, let's do some background context <laughs> on this before yeah, we delve yeah, into yeah. like the actual plot of this movie. So yeah, this movie comes out, uh, premieres at the Toronto Film Festival September 12th, 1986, releases a week later, September 19th, the same year, made for a budget of $6 million, only grosses $8.6 million in North America. So like, it doesn't really do that much, but you have to imagine every single person who saw this was probably someone from the film world. Because like, yeah. at the time it was like, Sight and Sound, Entertainment Weekly, Time, BBC, all ranking it as like one of the greatest movies of all time. Well, like, in their like top 10 of the year yeah like didn't the bbc call it like the best american film ever or something yes wild thing to say yeah but i mean david lynch is not the household name he will become of twin peaks and like i would imagine anything he released after twin peaks would have gotten some form of commercial bump off oh i'll see a movie by the guy that made twin peaks but that's the thing is so obviously this movie is four years before or three years before twin peaks yes as it's so very obviously the urtext mm-hmm. for that like this is when he starts working with so many people who are going to be instrumental to the vibes of twin peaks like this is the first angelo badalamenti score and so and that is his composer for the rest of his career yeah. and incredible believe, composer bye yeah bye. It, <laughs> fucking in, yeah, as, yeah, like it's it's crazy how good the the sounds of all of these yeah. shows are and movies and whatnot. But it also feels like a turning point in Lynch's career in terms of just the way that he structures things. Like, and that's not saying that A Razor Head isn't a weird movie, but fundamentally, Elephant Man and Dune are both a little bit more traditional, even this if they are this weird. Is Batman eighty nine? <laughs> yes, but it's 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 just that thing where like Elephant Man is a weird movie. Yeah. Dune is a weird movie, but they don't feel like they're fully unleashed Lynch until you get to this one, and this one feels like Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, Twin Peaks Fire, Walk With Me, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire all feel like a piece. Mm-hmm. And Twin Peaks as well, and uh, like both versions of it feel like they are very much like, that is the, the canon of Lynch, realistically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, and, and again, like a razor head obviously is is part of that, and Elephant Man is. I mean, he um, it's just it's just funny to think. And I said this before we started recording. Like David Lynch is a three time Oscar nominated for best director. Mm-hmm. Like he was nominated for this movie for Elephant Man and for Mulholland Drive. Yeah. Obviously, two of those he misses out on best picture. So it feels like that is the the directors guild going like fucking david lynch like what the fuck was that and then when the entire academy gets to vote on the categories it ends up going to the more traditional pick like oliver stone when it comes to platoon and then ron howard for a beautiful mind when it comes to like mulholland drive and you're like are you are you insane like in a year where 
in a year where you've got like Mahon Drive and the first Lord of the Rings movie, you're going to give it to fucking Ron Howard for Beautiful Mind. Every Ron Howard accolade is just richly undeserved. <laughs> just, <laughs> just the most milk toast director in the world. I really like Rush, but like, yeah, he is so paint by numbers. Um, he is he is the ultimate journeyman director, and like mm. he has good movies, but I yeah. feel like he's he's coasting forever off of like Apollo thirteen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like um, that movie too. But yeah, so like, uh, let's do some 1986 context. So, Matthew, what was nominated for Best Picture? Well, at the I mean, 19... you, you spoiled it just seconds ago, but yes. Children of a Lesser God, Hannah and Her Sisters, The Mission, A Room with a View, all nominated. Platoon wins. Oliver Stone also wins Best Director, beating David Lynch for Blue Velvet, Woody Allen for Hannah and Her Sisters, uh, Roland Joffe for The Mission, and James Ivory, A Room with a View. Back in the day when all of this was basically in lockstep and you just swap one for t'other. Dennis Hopper in this movie, which credited with like turning his career around, did get a Best Supporting Actor nomination for Hoosiers. Sigourney Weaver got an Oscar nomination for Ripley and Aliens. I did not know that. She did, she um, did. It's one, of the great, one of the greatest Oscar nominations of all time. Yeah, I assume that's actually for Alien, but you know, <laughs> we'll take it. It's just, it's just funny because it's like that they never give awards to sci-fi movies, and they never give awards to sequels and stuff like that. And for her to get that nomination is great. Great. Sorry, just breaking news for me anyway. Crocodile Dundee was nominated for best screenplay. Yeah, yes, Paul Hogan is an Academy Award nominated writer. They fucking love that script. Incredible stuff. So of course, he loses to Woody Allen. Oh yeah, well, who doesn't? But um, yeah, I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> look, I like Crocodile Dundee plenty fine, but I had absolutely no idea it was nominated. Oh, uh, what a time! Not yet. Yeah, Platoon, Platoon did pretty year. well though. If you get two best supporting actor nominations for the same movie out of it, that's a pretty rare thing, right? Two people from the same film in the same category. Yes, I wouldn't hazard to guess how many times, but it, ha- it, it happens. It happens every couple of years, but it, and it's normally for something that's like completely fucking dominating. I bet the fucking Big Short did it. Uh, I don't think it did. Oh, okay. I won't. I won't finish my typing. Yeah. Platoon, one of those movies we talk about, cooked in a lab to win Oscars, you know, America's Darkest Hour, all this shit. It's always interesting, because obviously Oliver Stone is, like, probably the most political director in America. When he's directed Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July, JFK, Nixon, W, and Snowden. Kind of crazy how And any him. given Sunday, come on. And any given Sunday, but, like, he's also... A man's working... eyeball comes out in that movie. And they just keep playing football. Like his eye is out on the on the on the grass. And they keep playing football. Sorry, carry on. Nineteen ninety nine, the greatest American film year ever. Yes. Of course. <sighs> But yeah, like Oliver, Oliver Stone is just like a, someone who like I would not want to listen to a political rant from him because I'm sure it would just be like nigh unlistenable. Mm. But he is kind of good at the whole making a movie thing. I feel like Mike Thomas hates him. I I think Oliver Stone makes good movies, even if yeah, he's probably a fucking shitty person. But like, there are many shitty people that make good things. Um, I mean, I'm not I'm not going to stump for like his last twenty years, but like when his last twenty years are like Alexander, World Trade Center, W, a sequel to Wall Street, Savages, and Snowden. Yeah, okay, let's maybe go nineties and earlier. Obviously, he peaked with any given Sunday, and then it was like, well, why bother? Yeah, you know, exactly. I have... Any other yeah. any other awards you want to pick out from the Oscars from this year, man? No, I'm I'm done being surprised at this point. I think I've I don't think anything twins. is more, nothing is more surprising than Crocodile Dundee being right. Oscar. I thought I was surprised by Ripley getting, sorry, by Sigourney Weaver getting the Oscar nomination, but Crocodile Dundee is another thing. Okay, so that's that's what some old white people for the Academy think. Tell me, 
what the more enlightened people that cultivate your most acclaimed of all time. Well, I already said thing. where where Blue Velvet is on the top one thousand. It's number eighty nine, mm-hmm. so very very high. Yeah. The highest rated movie in nineteen eighty six, one of the best movies of the eighties, one of the hundred greatest movies of all time. But also from nineteen eighty six, some movies that you might have heard of: The Green Ray, The Sacrifice, Aliens, Hannah and Her Sisters, The Fly. We could have done The Fly, Matthew. Never lost the Fly. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Stand mm-hmm. By Me, and A Better Tomorrow. John Woo doing this thing. <laughs> Fuck yeah, doves everywhere. But yeah, so a lot of directors, a lot of directors who've like come up over the course of like us doing these these podcasts and stuff like that. The the ubiquitous Woody Allen movie, where I don't even know where that stands in his canon and whether or not anyone's ever going to watch a Woody Allen movie after this point. They probably will, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Now you promised me a rundown of the plot of Blue Velvet, and I'm really excited. I mean, okay. I think the most important, like, the thing that I just kept on, like, wanting to bring up over the course of this conversation is the fact that the opening shot of this movie is American suburbia, Mm -hmm. a guy mowing his lawn, mowing his lawn, lawn, and then he has, like, a heart attack or an ear attack or whatever, and then... Then there's just bugs. And then there's just bugs and the thing. And obviously that is the start of this movie, and it's the kind of the, the visual metaphor that sets up everything else, which is, like, even when you think everything is nice and normal in suburbia, there is just evil... Yeah, evil and disgustingness kind of yes. underneath insidious all of things this. creeping in to poison the fabric of our wonderful American town. And then here's Kyle MacLachlan. How old Looking, is he supposed to be? Uh, I assume he's supposed to be kind of like either he's like 1920 or he's like coming home from college. So what? He's born in 1959. So at the point that this movie's filming, he's kind of 26. It's his second movie after Dune, right? Yeah. yeah. It's just funny to think that four years after this, he's on Twin Peaks and is like supposed to be like an experienced FBI agent. Yes. And you watch this and you're like, oh, you've you've never seen anything. You look so doe-eyed in this. <laughs> you sweet summer child. And then and then by the time he gets to Twin Peaks, he's still got that kind of like naivet- naivety around him, but also mm-hmm. he like he's seen some shit and you can tell yeah. that he's seen some shit. Yeah, it was filming Blue Velvet. And how old is Laura Dern supposed to be? <laughs> Laura Dern's supposed to be like sixteen, seventeen years old. Mm. Okay. She is eight years younger than Carl McLaughlin. So like okay. I think I think the they've shortened the age gap, but they haven't so much kind of like made like I guess I could just I could just never get I could just never get a beat on how old he was supposed to be because I'm like, well he's picking her up from high school, so I really hope he's like <laughs> I think they home say he's from come, college he's, rather I think than... they say that he's come home from college. Okay. Because obviously like he's come home from college to come take care of his dad, who's the person yeah. who had like the, the weird heart attack. And then when he's walking home from gonna find his dad, of course, what do you do on any random day in suburbia? You find, find a human ear. <laughs> cool. Love it. Love everything about it. Takes it to the police station. Sign me up. I, Tell me about this ear. Craft me I, a ninety-minute tale, how, right. David. So how how pissed are you that the ear ultimately is Means kind of nothing. nothing? Very, very pissed. Like he finds this ear, and you're like, oh wow, why is the ear here? Has something happened? Was there a fight? Blah blah blah. And then it's like mm-hmm. they cut the ear off of this guy, and then didn't send it to his wife. I yep. don't like that. Or did, and she just threw it. Like so she just went walking with it and just threw it. Or the guy that was supposed to take it dropped it. Genuinely, both of my suggestions as canonically possible as as what the film presents. A cat got it. I don't fucking know. (laughs) Furious, but... (laughs) It is cool. But that's the thing. It it, it lines up with my experience of Twin Peaks. This this girl has been murdered in this small town and has washed up and they don't know how the fuck it happened. I am massively on board and everyone's a suspect. And then he just, by the end, he's like, hmm, however, look at this room. (laughs) We're going to walk through it 14 times in a row. 
they um, do explain you get to see how Laura Palmer died as well yes I know and I hate it um, <laughs> if I describe to you or, or anyone the central conspiracy of Blue Velvet it sounds a lot more interesting than I actually find the experience of watching Blue Velvet wherein we have this conspiracy with like a cop and his partner and stealing drugs from lockup and giving them to a drug dealer and busting rival drug dealers and all of this but when we get into like Dennis Hopper huffing something and calling himself daddy and molesting a woman I'm like sorry how did you get Dennis Hopper to do this? Have you seen the the SNL episode where Dennis Hopper plays Frank Booth like on a quiz show? That sounds horrifying. <laughs> I've no idea how anyone the SNL like show got away with that. Like that feels like ultimate kind of like mm. coastal elite kind of thing where it's like, <laughs> well, of course we've all seen Twin Peaks, and then <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like um, Isabella Rossellini in this movie like was very noteworthy for a lot of men of a certain age. Sure, we have discussed Isabella Rossellini uh, on our on, on this podcast, her. On Death Becomes Her, where obviously she's wearing considerably less clothing in mm. this movie than she was in Death Becomes Her, because you see everything in this movie. Mm-hmm. And Kyle does not return the favour, but hey, close. <laughs> close. Um, I know you see, you, see, you see an outline. You, you see, see an like outline, a, okay. You see a tease. <laughs> Just just a hint of dick. It's just a hint. Yeah. So obviously, you know, he turns it into a copy noise. It was like, oh yeah, I'll look into it. But then it's later like, oh, stop asking me about it. And the, the only reason he's like, he like, it feels like his dad's like, stop asking me about it. And also maybe stop hanging around with my teenage daughter. Like a mm, little bit of that. But then the teenage daughter was like, oh, I can tell you so that you'll hang out with me. And watching them hang out is delightful. He does this chicken walk, stupidest fucking thing I've ever seen. And I would sleep with him. <laughs> Like, you know, that's how it works. She let me hit because I'm goofy. I don't know how she knows that the ear is tied to, to the lounge singer. Her and... dad speaks really loudly on the phone in his office. <laughs> sure. And, like, just keeps on restating everyone's name. So, like, <laughs> the ear belongs to Dorothy Valens' husband? Okay. Dorothy <laughs> Valens, he's involved with Frank Booth? Got it. It would have worked better if her father was David Lynch's Frank character Pete. from Twin Peaks. Oh, He's just constantly yelling. I thought you were going to say, like, he was the yellow man. No. Wouldn't have better if it was her father, but... No. (laughs) It turns into this, like, little flirtation kind of thing. Yeah. And then then eventually he basically goes, like, cool. Now that I've managed to get all the information out of you, I'm going to pretend to be an exterminator and Mm -hmm. break into this woman's apartment. Mm -hmm. One of David Lynch's other great passions, the wide fuckboys. Because, yeah, he is banging this older lady who has some issues he is not emotionally (laughs) equipped to deal with. And then he's also just, you know, staying in there with Sandy. You know, never just fully choosing one or t'other. And he does end up with Sandy, of course, who just completely forgives him for, you know, she shows up naked on his doorstep. And is like, my secret lover. And she slaps him and then just ends up with him anyway. I mean, that that is Lynch. Yeah. It's Lynch James. Like, it's just James from Twin Peaks. Like, no, but like Lynch has said that that's like something that happened to him. Was okay. that like a, a naked woman showed up on in front of the house and his, him and his brother, and it's like an image that has just stayed with him forever. And I mean, how horrifying yeah, no, it was. it's striking. Like you know, like you say, there's like he never makes out and out horror, but like he's got such horror sensibilities, and it is striking to see this this woman just outside the house babbling. But yeah, just like the obsession with this kind of thing where it's just like hapless white dude just fucking everything that moves and like ah well he's just a little rascal i find the whole relationship dynamic so fascinating between the two of them because obviously karma clockland breaks into this woman's house to investigate like where the gear came from yep and then obviously how does one go about that by the way 
Now, where could this ear have come from? <laughs> Just, are you looking for the rest of a body? <laughs> like... He manages to get inside the house. He fails to realise that she is returned from singing Blue Velvet at a nightclub yes. in time. And so she's inside. And so basically he watches her get sexually assaulted by her pimp or blackmailer. Like never, it's... never clear. <laughs> yeah, Frank is clearly some shit going on there. Whether it's... he has rape fantasies or, or what, or, or incest I mean, he's, he's the or... ultimate, like, Madonna whore complex kind of thing, where it's like, yeah. he, he wants yeah. to be, he wants to be mothered by this woman and also completely resents any vision of sexuality from yeah, her. Like, it, it's, me and then, yeah, yeah. it's very, like, like, psychosexually driven, and again, I, I think Hopper's fucking great in this role. It's, it's weird. It's a hell of a commitment on his part. Uh, yes. Like, it could have, it could have gone very badly for his career, but I guess he was at a point where, like, you've got to roll these dice because it's not going so hot right now. Although, as I said, he did get an Oscar nomination out of Hoosiers. But... And yeah, I guess the obviously. term psychosexual, like, it feels like it was designed for David Lynch in a way. It is funny that seven years later he ends up playing King Cooper in the Super Mario Bros. movie. Indeed. A role which will be followed up by Jack Black, two actors who have got so much in common. <laughs> I love Dennis Hopper's movie about teaching children to be in a rock band. Um... <laughs> God. But yeah, like he watches this sexual assault happen from the closet. And we've already mentioned like the editing on that scene is, is yeah. like done in such a way that it makes it feel much more graphic than maybe what is actually going on. Yeah, this is the scene that was presented to me and when, when I was studying film. You know, the, the, all the stuff with him in the closet, looking out, you know, the techniques on display here. This was what we were zeroing in on. And then obviously you just get a lot of people like, uh, like you know, giggling about the absolute nonsense that Frank Booth is spouting. That feels so weird to like <laughs> di- completely divorce the scene from like just the tone of everything else that's going on. And also showing it to a bunch of like 18, 19 year olds who are not going to take it seriously. But like out of context, this must feel like, is this a comedy? And it's like, no, there's a woman being sexually assaulted. Maybe take this a little bit more seriously than mm-hmm. than you actually are. Yeah. Um, I oh, mean, you know, the, the tension and the... The camera, you know, the in the closet camera and, and all of that stuff is is really really well done. Um, I guess it is a bit weird to just be like, okay, nineteen year old, here is something for you to look at. I mean, I, I can understand it. I mean, like that's how like I never did film at university. I I, mm. I attempted to, but I never actually studied film. I they would do it with like excerpts of books though, and it's yeah, always yeah, just one yeah. of the it's one of those just weird things where it's like analyze this piece of writing. It's like it feels weird to analyze something divorced of the, yeah, the outer context. In a vacuum. Of, yeah, yeah. I've always found it so funny that, like, the notion of film studies is so, like, mocked and looked down on and, like, pfft. And yet, like, English literature is, like, one of the most acceptable degrees out there. And it's like, why do you think that, like, they're plumbing the complete history of the finest works ever written and they're all brilliant, but they're just shoving on Fast and the Furious for film studies students? Like, it's never... Film is obviously a younger medium, but, like, are we all of the opinion there aren't, like a hundred genuinely artistic movies in the history of existence. Anyway. I, have, I have to assume so much of that is just also what do people watch? And like a lot of people are sat there going like, well, yeah, like why would you be sit there watching like Saving Private Ryan and film <laughs> studies? No, we're watching like M and like <laughs> movies that like you haven't heard of in our French and subtitled from yeah, like we did our yeah we did our uh, <laughs> our French New Wave module and but you know we did also look at shit like The Dark Knight and The Born Identity and Lethal Weapon of all things like but I mean there is you can 
analysis of a text is an analysis of a text. What the text is, I think, is anyway. Sorry, we're just justifying. No, no, my... I'm, just, I'm just trying to. Think, it's almost it's almost funny that we don't read like airport thrillers as part of an English literature. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We now move into the part that, aside from like the abstract stuff, is the stuff that I have the most trouble with. Is just the relationship between Carl McLaughlin and Rossellini. Just trying to assign any form of like coherent agency onto Dorothy and like what are we doing here where she's just begging to be hit repeatedly during sex and like I I, you know she's taking the control when she doesn't have it with you know because she is holding him at knife point and being like do this to me last thing is like what she she like she like almost goes down on him Mm -hmm. she's holding the knife she's threatening to like cut him and then is like I want you to hit me I want you to to make love to me and it's it's all just so naughty and again like psychosexual Freudian in all these different Mm -hmm. ways that like I can't help but like I want to dig into it I want to dig into like it's and again I can 100% see why people would think like this is misogynist why are you presenting this information to us why are you you portraying this on screen this feels exploitative this feels who would act this way yeah and i think the irrationality of it all feels more true to how a human would be than like like in that same way that you get people watching horror movies and they go like well why the fuck would they do that no sure like the very concept of a movie is to accept a level of contrivance and like people take turns talking and nobody asks anyone to repeat anything and and everyone is just brilliantly witty and like that takes a suspension of disbelief in the first place but i think there is a huge gap between that and like i don't know if it is isabella rossellini like being i presumably a non-first language english speaker and like not a very experienced actress at this point in her career i don't know if it's that or it's the dialogue or the direction but basically every line out of her that comes out of her mouth in this movie i'm like nobody would talk like this and i feel like that in large parts of twin peaks as well but like especially here i'm just like to me this is bad acting and clearly 99 percent of people disagree with that and and rave about her in this movie and i'm like you are doing bad acting but that's just how my brain has been programmed to accept what acting is and it's probably too limited a definition of it so who is your favorite of the kind of like the lynch the lynch ingenues like if we're saying like what's rossellini <laughs> dern and lee dern dern i mean dern, dern is yeah. dern is fucking i mean laura dern is just yeah everyone loves laura dern and obviously it's heather graham in twin peaks <laughs> that's the real answer who's like the only person who doesn't come back for like the return <laughs> but was also like the love interest for mclaughlin at the end yeah one of the approved ones well yeah because mclaughlin was dating lara flynn boyle yes who and forbid she... his cat because there was very clearly a setup of something with him and audrey that just suddenly goes away <laughs> because oh, she you... demanded it you haven't got the Audrey plotline in Twin Peaks The Return. I no. If you want the most... Sorry, I mean, okay, I will I will finish Twin Peaks The Return soon, I, I promise. The most niche talent in the world. My <laughs> partner can spot the actress who plays Audrey Horn in anything, and I can't... <laughs> I'm like, you're, you're talking bollocks, that's not her, and then it is always her. And I'm like, because for greater context... She's really bad with faces and thinks everyone looks the same and they're completely different human beings and I tell her she's only got room for like five faces in her head or something like that. But for whatever reason, the person who plays Audrey Horn and I should learn her name, she can spot her in anything. And I'm like, Sherilyn Fenn. Yes, Sherilyn Fenn. Yeah. Why have you watched? She's barely been She's in Titans. She's in... Whatever it is, we've seen her in it because it's all stuff when she's older. It's not... Because I would, I would recognise... Audrey Horn era Sherilyn Fenn, but yeah, anything where she's her more current age, 
she can just pick her out. And I was like, that's Audrey. And I'm like, what the fuck? No, it isn't. And it is every time. That's crazy. Uh, yeah, the, the Audrey <laughs> stuff in Twin Peaks Return is potentially the most maddening plotline of the season. And I, I almost want you to watch, like, episode eight and the Audrey plotline are the things I want your reaction to, just because I like to see you suffer in the same way that I'm like, at some point, you're going to read Final Crisis. Um, no. Yeah, no. At some no, point the problem read, is I'm not. At some point you're going to read Final Crisis, and the text exchange we're going to have when that happens is going to be beautiful. Okay. I'm doing a, a giant Batman reread, and I remembered he doesn't die in Batman, does he? He dies in Final Crisis, <laughs> and now I'm like, fuck. <laughs> but I don't want to read it. But yeah, and and like the movie, the movie at this point, getting back on track. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, are we are we not coherent enough in a twin? In a, no, I think this is this is perfect. Okay. This is, the tangents in this are are, are spot on. Uh-huh. Basically, the movie then kind of, kind of settles into this little groove where he's like splitting his time between sleeping with Dorothy and flirting with Sandy because she doesn't want to sleep with him because she's got a boyfriend who just seems like the most milk toast ideal of what a like high school jock would be. And then they basically like catch him leaving her apartment and then they just take him on a night out. But like the weirdest fucking night out you've ever seen. Yeah, because we have Dean Stockwell. We have as me, Dean Stockwell as Ben. Yeah, as you just sings a Roy Orbison song or lip syncs to a Roy Orbison song in full for no reason. And is it Ben that has the husband and child kidnapped? Yes, he's he's keeping care of the husband and child, and like that permits Dorothy to go see them. And then whilst Dorothy's going to go see them, he does the lip sync, which makes Frank cry. Mm-hmm. Yes, move to tears, and then, and then goes and, and gives then, him a nice big kiss. Yes, and then a woman dances on top of the car. That's the shit that like really gets me. I'm like, you had to go that one step further. You had to have some weirdo just completely reacting the wrong way to whatever you're showing. <laughs> Kisses him, beats the shit out of him. He's remarkably cavalier about everything, considering he gets basically kidnapped and assaulted by drug dealers and could have been murdered quite easily. But he carries on with his investigation. <laughs> the plot is almost like entirely secondary for like the, the back half of this movie, where it is just hmm. things happen, characters run into each other, realize how they're connected to this entire plot. Like they realize that. Sandy's father's partner is like actually in cahoots with with the yellow man. He's the yellow man, and that's the thing. We get this kind of thing, which again feels very Lynchian, where like you have the yellow man, the well dressed man, and like the fake out for no reason that Frank just is the well dressed man. What was the mystery here? Like, he sees him meet with him twice and thinks they're different people. The well-dressed man is just so weird, because it's like the movie only exclusively shows him from, like, far-out, zoomed-out shots, and you're like, you kind of go, like, that's Dennis Hopper. I'm pretty sure that's Dennis Hopper. It's Dennis Hopper with a bad What you've done over. there is you've cast someone who I recognise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's like, would it have worked better if the well-dressed man was Sandy's dad or something? No idea. There were kind of, like, leaps in logic and... I just I I enjoy it though because so much of like the drive of this is just kind of high school bullshit where it's like (laughs) Mike goes to try and beat down Jeffrey but then like a naked woman arrives and it's just oh sorry man I didn't realize this was going on yeah it's it's the moments of normality (laughs) that are that are basically interrupted by the darkness at the heart of this community that are so fascinating to me because they're so unexplainable and then and i think that's again the thing that's wrinkly with you is like i want them to be explained i want to understand why this is happening like drugs in a community makes sense yeah but it doesn't make sense any of the things that these characters do why is he huffing 
pointless thing. Yeah. Why is he kidnapped this woman's family? Is it and like, like I, I don't need all of it is the thing I want to stress. I'm not one of those people that is like, I must get one hundred percent of the jokes in a movie or a TV show, otherwise it has failed. Like I don't subscribe to that. I don't need to know every piece of law. I I hate that so much media these days is like let's explain what what was the joke like with the star wars shows like and that's how leia had her iconic hairstyle or whatever you know i don't need any of that i'm fine with him just being a weirdo who huffs gas but there needs to be something <laughs> like i i get there's, a, there's he, a term for it so... and i can't remember it but it's like when a character has just a completely random and very specific detail to them and it's like no that's cool that rules like that that's a that's an affectation that i will remember but it's like give me something of his deal <laughs> i mean blank check called no i don't think it's the exact thing you're talking about but blank check called when a character has like an object that they're obsessed with that has got no impact on the plot right. whatsoever right. a blender yes, and they're like the, the ultimate the ultimate one of those is like i robot will smith with the sneakers Sure, sure. It's world-building. It's environmental storytelling. Yeah, it's just people have their shit, and I'm cool with that. I just need to know literally anything about Frank Booth that isn't just, he's a weirdo. Why is, he, why is he so emotionally invested in music? Like, yeah. obviously, like he cries during in dreams. He's very obviously like emotionally affected with Blue Velvet, and it almost yeah. feels like they need to give him her blanket and put him down for a nap when he is sing Blue Velvet. Yeah, like, and but... we can just we can make our guesses that like his mother abused him and loved that song or something. No idea, but I need more than what he gives me, and it doesn't even have to be so much more. It can be like fifteen percent more, and I, I would be far happier. But. You know, I understand that this is this is the experience and this is what people like, is that what seems like random bullshit is like meticulously crafted just vision. But like, yeah, I just need something. I'm 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 drowning here. <laughs> so why does Jeffrey go to the apartment? <sighs> um Cause obviously like they they tell Laura Dunn's father everything. And then and he, he sees and... Yellow Man rock up at the that house and realizes he's his partner. Yes. And what or are we talking about the different I'm d- no, no, no. I mean, like when at the end, when like he's he set up the the police raid is happening, and he goes around right, right, to, right, right, right. to to Dorothy's house, and like he's I can't I he, I can't remember if he's going around there because obviously she uh, she's so not shouldn't make it, and he's going to investigate whatever the hell's gone on there, or if he just mm-hmm. is like need to make sure that your home is safe, and then he obviously comes into the, the tableau that we've already mentioned of her husband with his ear chopped off, tied to a chair, and the yellow man with, with his brains bashed in, with but his, he's still like in some way reactive yeah <laughs> and it's super fucked up and i I'm, I'm down with that like that's like this is weird but cool um, but is that like is that like dorothy escaped and like bashed him on the head and then ran away and I, so i don't i do not know yeah you assume that like that whole scene went down and then she ran to him but like no idea and then yeah they play the world's worst game of cat and mouse for the walkie-talkie <laughs> like, this space is not that big dude <laughs> I like that he like he realizes he's coming. There's like, wait, if I hide the walkie-talkie in the bedroom, I can hide in the closet, and it's all comes in circles. I'm I love every shot from the point of view of the closet. It's such yeah, a yeah. Okay, we, we've talked about it a lot in terms of like the visual space or like the the actual like physical location of like things. And this yes. apartment, you know, the interior of this department apartment, you know where like things are happening. And like for a movie that is relatively short, I mean, obviously it's two hours, but like it, you don't spend that many overall scenes in the apartment really but they basically they're just these long static shots that just make you fully immersed in this space and he's something that lynch is very good at is he's very good at 
these weird kind of like sparse spaces Mm -hmm. that feel so unique but also like people actually kind of would live in them i don't it's like it's a weird it's a weird line between like they feel almost fake like a set but also real and like an actual person could live there and i don't it's like heightened but also has a sense of it's been lived in it's it's a world that is fully formed um, I believe that things exist beyond what I can see on the camera, but it's all very, like, it has that soap opera feel, it has that heightened reality, and I think we need to establish, like, the rules of be- of, of film by Ben and Matt, and one of them is, like, I must understand a physical space kind of thing, like, like that takes you to that upper echelon. When I mean, the amount of times that I, I've seen, I've not seen Jurassic World Dominion yet, but, like, people mm. are, like, sharing a clip of, like, how bad the editing and how it's just impossible to get a feel for, for the location. And I feel like it's a big issue in a lot of modern blockbusters where, like, they film in the space and they'll green screen it in later. And you're like, no, I want to I wanna know that you've actually, like, thought yeah. about this more than you can cut away and uh, it it's an issue and then like obviously a lot of these directors who especially when they're working with smaller budgets end up you really inhabit the space that you're in yeah yeah i think it's an economy of set i'm loath to keep bringing this one up but it does feel like the one it's like serenity from firefly like i understand that ship i understand where everything in that craft is and we talked about it with like john wick's house on um on secret agent man and stuff and understanding how he's moving through the space to take everyone out and like yeah it just takes you to that other level and yeah like i said like even when i'm not having a good time with lynch from a what does any of this mean perspective he has just always had immaculate vibes when it comes to his locations and and his sets and you know the the diner from twin peaks is is an incredible you know it's so simple but it's you are overjoyed to be there every time and you know yeah. every booth is and then how the counter works and all of that stuff even in this where like the the yeah, lounge the closet and the, and the lounge oh. and the, yeah he is a director who like i'm i'm almost like i want him to do an experiment where he doesn't write one of his movies and mm. like see what happens when you have someone who's putting a bit more thought into the actual like machinations is that what's going to get him to push me over the edge or is it the fact that because he writes all of his own scripts and he's someone he's... who will not credited as the writer of straight story maybe that is the one so if that's the most normal one and he didn't write it no yeah i would i would be interested to see him work with a script that someone handed him you know just like be picked of like you know we've got this script we'd like you to direct it kind of thing Uh, that probably would be a really fascinating thing because so much of it feels like he is so so intimately involved in the craft of the world kind of thing but i guess that's kind of what you're getting from mark frost to a degree <laughs> yeah like but then it, it, it's all one of those things where like when he comes in to do the finale of twin peaks season two he's basically just like i'm rewriting this entire script from from the top down <laughs> i'm throwing in all the like old recurring characters who we haven't seen in a while and i'm going yeah. for like the pure lynchian nightmare of it all with like we're gonna spend 30 minutes of this 40 minute episode in in the red room and all the rest of it yeah or just... in, the, in the in the black lodge yeah he went too hard <laughs> <laughs> He, he relapsed real hard. Jeffrey shoots Frank and, and, and he gets to end up with, with Sandy and the like happy little family with the Williamses. Yeah. Dorothy Dorothy gets her son back. Dorothy her gets her son back. died. Yeah, that's fine though. I think that doesn't help the case for the misogyny arguments is that like Dorothy does not feel like a character. Like she feels like a prop to aid the weirdness and that she is part of Jeffrey's story and that like oh yeah, she got a kid back, don't worry about it. You know, and like she seems to snap into this completely different person again. She went from being this 
unhinged human being. I guess I want to be careful about the language I use and don't want to be insulting, but you know, it's like it's clearly an awful lot of damage there and and some stuff to work through. And then it's like, and now she's just a suburban mom again, and it's like, oh, okay. I wonder if that's what Lynch's intent is, where it's like, once you've been touched by this awfulness, mm. it's impossible to ever return to any state of of normalcy. Except they seem to. Well, no, because then they, because obviously the final shot of the movie is the Robins and all the rest of it when they're talking yeah. about the Robin is what will bring hope and whatever, and the Robin's eating eating a bug and all that. And it's like, is the Robin the thing that's bringing it back, or is that just yeah, like the the, the, the the hopeful youth of America can can consume this darkness and restore this land to blah 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 blah. Apropos, like you don't, absolutely. Like you didn't like the Robin monologue then. No, not at all. <laughs> that feels very Lindelof, actually. Fucking love the shot where Sandy emerges from the shadows. I guess, is it the first time, they, or like the second time they talk? She just kind of like ethereally, almost on the spikely like travelator, just sort of moves forward out of the darkness. I think that's that's a really cool shot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean I, I, he frustrates me because I want to love him and I can't. I don't want to like be the nine hundredth thousandth person to pick on Michael Bay, but like it's it's worse to me for for me to like get something out of your stuff and then like be driven to like frustrated tears by other parts of it. But yeah, I mean, I guess I guess I'm not a true Lynch guy because I look at Twin Peaks and I'm like, ah, oh, you you could have had it all, and then I'm like, you know what, X Files came along and was like, we're just gonna do season one. And that's all we're doing, and we're just going to rule for most of our runtime, and don't worry about the I later guess, seasons. I guess the thing is, like, you look at Twin Peaks, and Twin Peaks feels like mm. it's it's just this complete shift in how we make television. The television doesn't catch up for for ten years. Absolutely. Even when you think of like the great shows of the nineties, none of them are serialized in the way that Twin Peaks is. No, not at all. And like you know, you can kind of see a straight line from Twin Peaks to Lost. Obviously, with some some stops along the way. But like like you throw in Sopranos, you throw in X Files, you throw in like mm. these other formative things that are just changing. Yeah, but like X Files, that there are some elements that come back up, but for the most part, it's a procedural. And like I I haven't seen Sopranos, but like is there like that big mystery element of everyone? gathering around and be like oh what do you reckon happened there then no there's not but there's definitely an element of of dream logic and sure. like i would i would definitely put sopranos and lynch like if if you told me that lynch had directed a handful episode of the sopranos i'd be like oh yeah sure that makes complete and total fucking sense okay. interesting yeah but as you say like so so formative another one where like as a kid <laughs> you see who shot mr burns and you're like the fuck was any of that nonsense? And then you get older and you're like, oh, adults must have been loving that scene when that came on in The Simpsons. Oh, 100%. 100%. <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to, is there anything anything more to bring up about Blue Velvet? I mean, obviously, Lana Del Rey is obviously, like, so entirely, like, indebted to, like, the aesthetic of this all. She does a cover of Blue Velvet. <laughs> it's weird, the, the pop culture tendrils that Lynch kind of spreads out. Like, for yeah. someone who you would think is so challenging... And and so ubi- like so unique and so niche. There's so many people who fucking love him. Yeah, and like you see him doing interviews and stuff, and like it's always an interesting experience. He's a very honest man who is just full of these bizarre anecdotes. Isn't he like really into Woody Woodpecker or something? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I believe so. I feel like I have a memory of that, and I don't know why. I'm learning now. Megan Mullally shot some scenes for this movie that were not 
in it originally. Yes, um, they found they found additional scenes in 2011 that are on the um that are on the Blu-ray at this point. Mm. Molly Ringwald was almost cast. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, sorry, Molly Ringwald turned down the role that Laura Dern took. I was going to say, surely, Laura Dern's role. Well, more, more for her. And, um, I mean, Laura I mean, Dern, Laura... the thinking man's Molly Ringwald. <laughs> Laura Dern is a goddamn star, and I yeah. love how many Lynch movies she's in, and it feels like they're, like, the best friends. Like, do you know who she plays in Twin Peaks The Return? Didn't know she was in it, so... <laughs> so she, she plays Diane. Oh, my God, no, don't tell me... Oh, I love the idea Diane doesn't exist. <laughs> because... Oh, what is that game? That video game that is clearly made by a Japanese guy who loves Twin Peaks but doesn't fully understand it. Oh, oh. is it Suda? De- um, deadly, deadly premonition. Deadly premonition, where he is very clearly talking to someone that isn't real, and like they're trying to pass it off as they're doing the Twin Peaks thing, and like he's. But I always love the idea that Diane doesn't exist and Cooper's just a fucking madman claiming <laughs> to be an FBI agent. <laughs> Obviously, it's not true because he pulls in FBI resources constantly. But yeah, the constantly talking to Diane and never seeing her was a wonderful thing. So okay, I mean, you've ruined it for me. I'm sorry, uh, and I'm devastated. But that's fine. Let's let's be honest. It's low on the list of things you've spoiled for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you did spoil working with the... Ben Phillips when Game of Thrones was was new and and <laughs> and you hadn't stayed up until three a.m. like a madman like he had hazardous. To your to your avoidance of spoilers. You'd read the books. Not, uh, yeah, I guess I had, but still. Anyway, that's Blue Velvet. I had a real, I had a really fun time talking about it. A lot more fun than I had watching it. So uh, we get to dig you, into our own psychoses and everything like you that. You just have to explore the id of of Matt Waters every week. Right. Let's leave this so, thing. Though. Yeah, let, let's, let's leave this dark this. insect infested thing behind us. Uh, and let's and let's go to a director a director set who we have covered a movie from mm. almost every miniseries. I think they are one of our few threefers. No one has made it to the full four. I was going to say, we don't have a fourther, do we? We don't have a fourther, because, like, fuck covering any of um, Catherine Bigelow's movies from the 1980s, to be honest. Did we not have a Spielberg? In the... I guess there aren't really good... We didn't do a Spielberg in the 2010s. When was Tintin? Tintin was 2011. Why didn't you push harder? Oh, Tintin fucking rips. <laughs> That's what you told me in every clip I've ever seen of it. I'm like, that looks really good. Tintin and I've just never watched it. Why didn't you do this? He could have been four for four and we could have just fulfilled the prophecy that he is the one true director. I do think that is his best movie of the 2010s. I don't well, know there you I'm... go then. But it's still like a four-star movie. I had, I had bigger fish to fry. I had to get you to sit and watch Florida Project. Thanks. <laughs> but yeah, uh, we're covering Raising Arizona next week. Yep, an actor as insane as David Lynch is a director. Nicolas Cage, good or bad. I watched that episode of Community recently. Still rules. Absolutely, of course. Oh, I'm, I'm editing that one, so I've got to dig out the clip. Oh, well. You'll have to watch some Community. Oh, well. What a torturous thing. I know. We literally just finished it start to finish, and we're like, what's our thing we watch at, like, you know, 10pm when we're, like, settling down for bed now? Is that Community season one? <laughs> like, actually thought about it. I probably do need to get on a rewatch in time for the movie. Yeah, starring Gillian Anderson. <laughs> I hope she does show up now. That would be a very good bit. <laughs> for no for no one. Like yeah. it's only people who are on Twitter that one specific day that this happened. But that's how media works these days. I know. <laughs> you get on board so, you get left behind. There'll be so many explainer articles the day the movie comes out. Why is Gillian Anderson playing the Britta role in? Just in the opening scene or something, just to try and sell it. They're watching um, a community movie and Gillian Anderson is playing Britta's character or something. <laughs> or like they're watching a movie about her activism. Yeah. Where do okay. you do you think they get Donald Glover to do a cameo? 
I reckon Glover and Nicole Brown are probably holding out in terms of contract negotiations. And they'll... I think they get them, but they're not like yeah. in the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually wouldn't be stunned to see some form of Chevy Chase. It I know they feels... hate each other, but he got him to come back and do the hologram scene. Yeah, it feels like it feels like that is like getting everyone back is what the completion is going to be. But I don't think we'd hear about it until the movie comes out. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm I way was... more in. I'm way more invested in who's directing this. Yeah. Is it one of the Russos? Is it Lynn? Is Harmon going to step behind the camera? <laughs> God, I don't think he's ever directed anything. No, I don't think so. Lynn and the Russos are like the two. Yeah, and they've both got stuff that's been cancelled. <laughs> Maybe they're free now. Anyway. This has been our episode on Blue Velvet, one of our many, many tangent-filled episodes. Thank you, Matthew, for being here. And of course, I have one question to ask you. Oh, no. Will there be movies? Right, I will tell you if there will be movies, but just don't look at the dancing lady up there and pucker up. I don't know. Bye, everyone. Bye.